0: 3. Rebirth calls for environmental protection. Could perhaps a consciousness of reincarnation also help? Whoever knows that he will come back wants a healthy planet. We know today that Jesus spoke repeatedly of rebirth in his Aramaic mother tongue. According to the Jewish philosopher Shalom ben Shorin, the belief in rebirth was a popular belief. But later, the Christian bishops eliminated these words of Jesus by majority vote. Rebirth is taken for granted in Asian religions. But in all religions and cultures, there are people who remember past lives. Cultures and religions that believe in rebirth should, if only for selfish reasons, stand up for environmental protection, because in their next lives, they also need a hospitable earth. Does environmental and climate protection have a higher priority in Asian rebirth religions than in Western religions?
1: Yes, it does, but hardly in practical politics. In practical environmental behavior, very little can be felt so far. Think of China's environmental problems, or of Japan's nuclear power plants, and coal-fired power plants in India. It is true, however, That a person who believes in rebirth naturally wants an environmentally friendly planet in our next life. Me too. (laughs) We can no longer keep exploiting the resources of this earth, the trees, the water, and the minerals, without any care for the coming generations. It is common sense that we cannot survive if we keep working against nature we must learn to live in harmony with nature. As a Buddhist monk who believes in rebirth, even for selfish reasons, we must pay more attention to our planet, because we will come back. And all of us would like to live on a healthy earth. The belief in rebirth calls for more environmental and climate protection.
0: Wise men of all cultures were convinced of reincarnation. For example, the German philosopher Schopenhauer in the 19th century, or Pythagoras in ancient Greece, as early as 20 years before Buddha. The Christian church father, Origen of Alexandria, was also convinced of reincarnation. The Jewish religious scholar Shalom Ben-Shorin writes, In the days of Jesus, the belief in reincarnation was popular belief. Today's Christian Western world is the only region on our planet where reincarnation is officially denied. You, dear friends, say, spirituality is the essential key to our survival. Could you give reasons for this statement?
1: I have often said that in keeping with the tradition of Tibetan Buddhist culture, all sentient beings have been our mothers. The entire Buddhist spirituality is characterized by this realization. All sentient beings are connected by a maternal bond. This is the basic truth of awakening, enlightenment, and realization. We are all interconnected in the universe, and from this, universal responsibility arises. Jesus knew this spiritual law called karma in Buddhism and talked about it without using the word karma. It is a spiritual law that you reap what you sow. Things entirely depend on your effort, your action. So things change through action and not by prayer. We must act to create positive karma, Positive karma means positive action.
0: 4. Buddha. We are what we think. Buddha said we are what we think. Everything we are arises from our thoughts. Our thoughts shape our world. In the last few months, teenager Greta Thunberg from Sweden has proved with her firm will what a single person can achieve. She started her school strike in the summer of 2018 and on a Friday, all by herself, sat down in front of the Reichstag in Stockholm. On her protest poster, it said, school strike for the climate. On the following Friday, four students, girls and boys were sitting next to her. And today, hundreds of thousands follow her in over a hundred countries. On March 15th, 2019, it was 1.6 million. On September 20th, 2019, over six million. The young lady spoke at the World Climate Summit in Poland, met the Pope, was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, and in Sweden was named Woman of the Year. Time magazine counts her among the 100 most influential people worldwide. When asked why she is fighting for the climate, she says, I know what's at stake, the survival of mankind, and I consider it my moral duty to do everything I can to avert the worst. At first I tried to inspire others, but nobody wanted to get involved, so I started alone. We can achieve a lot if a lot of people join in. She also says that she took part in many demonstrations for the climate before, but nobody reported on it. Only when she had the idea of a school strike and put it into practice did it become a world issue. And today she tells the politicians, We're going on strike until you act. Together we will change the world the shy teenage girl fell ill because she could no longer stand the images of plastic mountains in the oceans. Her mother says, after her illness, Greta sees things that others don't see, the CO2 of airplanes and cars and coal-fired power plants. She sees that we are transforming the atmosphere into an invisible, gigantic garbage dump. As a Buddhist, how do you explain today's global Greta effect that no scientist could have devised?
1: I really appreciate Greta Thunberg's efforts to raise awareness of the need to take direct actions. People like her are realistic. We should encourage them. The young Greta's motivation to create awareness on global warming among schoolchildren is a remarkable achievement. Despite being very young, her sense of universal responsibility to act is wonderful. I support her Fridays for Future movement. I believe that every individual has a responsibility to help guide our global family in the right direction. Good wishes alone are not enough. We have to assume responsibility. Large human movements spring from individual human initiatives. The youth of the 21st century are the planet's real humanity now. They have the ability and opportunity to bring change, to create a century of peace, dialogue, and compassion. Even as global warming increases in intensity, they can work together in the spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood to share and find solutions. They are our real hope. Ideas may travel from the top down, but the movements that put them into effect have to work from the bottom up. Therefore, I am encouraged to see young people trying to bring about positive change. Confident because their efforts are based on truth and reason. Therefore, they will succeed. So now, the generation of the 21st century The young brothers and sisters must take a more active role in protecting ecology and our home.
0: 5. Greta, our house is on fire. Is Greta, together with the thousands of pupils and teenagers that have begun to follow her, right when they call out to us old people, we are loud because you're stealing our future? Greta says, our house is on fire. Is that exaggerated?
1: The young climate activist is right. Scientists and environmental campaigners have been selflessly and tirelessly putting effort into creating a better environment for the world so that future generations will be able to live a healthy, happy life. The 2015 Paris Agreement was signed by leaders of 196 countries to combat climate change and limit temperature rise to well below 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. And it is a source of hope and encouragement. They are now committed to more effective climate protection. If millions of young brothers and sisters all over the world go on strike because politicians are inactive, that's a sign that something is not in order. Climate change is not the concern of just one or two nations. It is an issue that affects all humanity. This beautiful planet is our only home. If, due to global warming or other environmental problems, the Earth cannot sustain itself, there is no other planet we can move to and live on. We have to take serious action now to protect our environment and find constructive solutions to global warming.
0: How can we motivate politicians as well as business people to do more for the environment and the climate than they have done so far?
1: In recent months, millions of young brothers and sisters have been protesting, calling for politicians to take action on combating climate change, Environmental education must be given top priority as we all have become witnesses to the destruction of our ecosystem and a dramatic decrease in biodiversity. Creating awareness is not sufficient. We must find a way to implement change with conviction. We must think globally but act locally. This should even apply when electing political leaders— Our voting patterns are also an ethical issue. Today, we are witnessing a strong connection between environmental politics and elections. People have elected greater numbers of Green parliamentarians in Germany, Switzerland, Finland, Belgium, the Netherlands, and the European Parliament. This is a strong indication that public opinion and actions can change politicians' minds. Fortunately, especially young people today understand the connection between environmental politics and elections.
0: What's your response to what Greta Thunberg and young people like her are doing? Do you support young students taking time off from school and standing up as activists to demand radical change?
1: I wrote a letter to her. I really admire what she's doing. We older people will probably be able to manage over the next one or two decades. But the lives of young people like her may extend until the end of this century, and they will have to face whatever changes come about. Therefore, it is quite right that students and today's younger generation should have serious concerns about the climate crisis and its effect on the environment. They are being very realistic. We should encourage them. Sometimes it seems that older people lead a more materialistic way of life. They belong to a more materialistic culture. Younger people are beginning to feel there is something lacking in such a way of life. We should encourage them.
0: Greta Thunberg is quite realistic about politics, she said to members of the U.S. Congress. Don't invite us here to just tell us how inspiring we are without actually doing anything about it. What can we do about climate change now?
1: Well, we could do a lot. You come from Germany. After 1945, European history has shown that peace is possible, even though in Europe in the last century, everyone had been at war against one another. I have great admiration for the spirit of the European Union that has preserved peace among its members. No country within the European Union has waged war against another one. Seventy years of peace. The European Union was rightly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2012. Politics can change just as people can. The European Union is a wonderful peace project that gives me great encouragement. Every crisis creates opportunities. Many people experience this in their private lives. But also crises in politics and the economy always create opportunities. We are always the same people at all levels.
0: 6. The mountains here are as bald as a monk's head. 1. Plant Trees As a Buddhist monk, you also rely on the power of thought, as already mentioned. Thoughts and their energies are transported further on a spiritual level. Thoughts are energies that form in our minds. Our positive energies can have a positive impact, negative thoughts, of course, a negative effect. What could this Buddhist thinking do for more and better climate protection? Looking at the Himalayas from your exile, I recall one of your quotations. The Himalayan mountains have become as bald as a monk's head. The Dalai Lama laughs and scratches his bald head. Thirty years ago on German television, I already showed the brutal deforestation of the Tibetan forests by the Chinese. How can we stop the environmental destruction, and how can the climate still be saved?
1: Only when we understand that our earth is like a mother Mother Earth, will we really take care of her? We Tibetans, like the ancient Indian peoples, understand this interdependence healthy earth, healthy animals, healthy plants, healthy forests, healthy water, healthy people. Mother Earth warns us today my children are behaving badly. She is warning us that there are limits to our actions. Today, we are consuming as much coal, gas, oil, and petrol a day that took nature a million years to form. That is the cause of global warming. As a Tibetan Buddhist monk, I am committed to a moderation in our consumption patterns. A responsible life is a simple and contented life. We must learn to cooperate, work, And live with nature, and not against nature.
0: In Tibet, China has cut down 85% of all trees, thus depriving your country of its life force. Why did the Chinese cut down Tibet's forests, and what are the consequences for your native country?
1: When the forests in Tibet die, a whole nation suffers. And when a people suffers, the whole world suffers. We need forests for our health as well. When we go for a walk in a forest, fresh air is healing. We need green forests. They are nature's great gift. Forests are good for our soul. In the forest, we find the calm that our brain needs for regeneration. Forests are water reservoirs home to many animal and plant species, and are important as an air-conditioning machine. They are a mirror of the diversity of life. The large-scale deforestation in Tibet is a matter of great sadness. It is not only sad for the local area, which has lost its beauty, but for the local people. The deforestation of the Tibetan Plateau, according to experts, will change the amount of reflection from snow into space. Forested areas absorb more solar radiation. And this affects the monsoons not only in Tibet, but in all surrounding areas. Therefore, it becomes even more important to conserve Tibet's environment. The environmental destruction in Tibet clearly shows that Chinese communist ideology lacks what, in our Tibetan culture, is meant by interdependence or universal responsibility. This also surprises me because communists like to sing the international. (laughs) Today, no nation can solve its problems on its own.
0: Interjection, dear friend. In the United States, President Trump rules according to the motto America First and Make America Great Again. Is this motto still up to date in times of globalization?
1: When the president says America First, he makes his voters happy. I can understand that. But from a global point of view, this statement is not relevant. In today's global world... Everything is interconnected. America's future also depends on Europe and Europe's future, also on Asian countries. The new reality means that everything is related to everything. The USA is the leading nation of the free world. That's why the U.S. president should think more about global-level issues.
0: Should a contemporary topic not be make the planet great again?
1: Certainly. The US is still very powerful. The motto of America's ancestors was peace, liberty, and democracy. The totalitarian systems have no future. As a leading power, the USA should ally itself closely with Europe. I am an admirer of the European Union. The EU is a big and exemplary peace project. Unfortunately, President Trump had announced the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement. He may have his reasons, but I do not support them. The EU should also become a role model in terms of climate protection. Each and every one should become a climate protector. However, we will not reach this goal through egoism and nationalism, but through the promotion of a sense of oneness of humanity.
0: You suggest planting trees for the future and for peace. Why is that so important?
1: Trees have been our companions through history, and they remain important today. They purify the air for living beings to breathe. Their shade provides a refreshing place to rest and serves as a place for insects and birds to live. They contribute to timely rainfall, which nourishes crops and livestock and balances the climate. They create an attractive landscape, pleasing to the eye and calming for the mind, and continually replenish their surroundings. Properly managed, they are also a source of economic prosperity. When the environment becomes damaged and polluted, Oceans and lakes lose their cool and soothing qualities, so the creatures depending on them are disturbed. The decline of vegetation and forest cover causes the earth's bounty to decline. Rain no longer falls when required, the soil dries and erodes, and forest fires rage. We all suffer the consequences, whether we are ants in the jungle or human beings in cities. In the context of Buddhism, trees are often mentioned in accounts of the principal events of Buddha's life. He was born as his mother leaned against a tree for support. He attained enlightenment seated beneath a tree and finally passed away as trees stood witness overhead. According to the monastic code of discipline, Fully ordained monks are enjoined not only to avoid cutting trees or grass, but also to plant and nurture them. Therefore, it is in our own interest to plant trees and flowers around the places where we live, work, and study, as well as around hospitals and alongside paths and roads. In the Tibetan monasteries in Tibet and India, We have been cultivating tree plantations over the past few decades. This brings in the action of serving others and of creating a better environment and a happier place. Please also listen to the Dalai Lama's tree poem in part 7 of this book. And to truly acquire a sense of responsibility for community, one has to first feel responsible for one's own place or home. The longing for nature and green is ingrained in us. Human beings love green so much that they plant more and more trees in our cities and towns, and even trees on the roofs. When you spend time in the forest and hear birds singing, you feel good inside. The healing power of forests is becoming increasingly important. When we are surrounded by artificial things, it's harder to be peaceful. It's as if we begin to be artificial. We develop hypocrisy, suspicion, and distrust. In that state, it's hard to develop genuine, warm-hearted friendship. We all feel the need to be surrounded by life. We need life around us that grows, flourishes, and thrives. Because, as social animals... We also want to grow, flourish, and thrive. We all love our technology, but our relationship with plants and nature is inextricably very old and very deep. Buddhist ethics embrace all life, not solely human, but also animal and plant life.
0: The destruction of the environment has now also reached the Tibetan highlands. In the West, many people are still dreaming of Tibet as a paradise, a Shangri-La. Is Tibet still a paradise?
1: What the Chinese did on the roof of the world after 1959, especially during the Cultural Revolution, was a cultural genocide. What I learned today from Tibetan refugees who I meet in my exile in Dharamsala makes me fear that my home country is rather the opposite of a paradise. But I find admirable how the vast majority of Tibetans, seventy years after the occupation, still cling to their religion, language and culture, and respect for environment, even though there are more Chinese than Tibetans today living in Lhasa, Tibet's capital. The Chinese have reduced us to a minority in our own country.
0: Do you think that you will reach this goal and return to Tibet someday?
1: China is a great nation, an ancient nation, but its political system is a totalitarian system. No freedom. I am happy to live in India for the rest of my life. I can live in this country and utilize the Indian freedom to fulfill my commitments toward promotion of human values, religious harmony, protection of Tibetan culture and environment, and revival of ancient Indian knowledge.
0: Should the Buddha return to our world and join a political party, he would certainly be green, you say. What makes you so sure?
1: Buddha and we Buddhists have deep respect for nature and evolution. We know that nature does not need us humans, but we do need nature. Looking at today's global exploitation of nature, I think, without humans, the Earth would do better.
0: (laughs) Which political party would you support?
1: I have no hesitation in supporting initiatives that are related to protecting the environment. In Europe... I would vote for the Green Party, because threats to our environment are a question of our survival. This beautiful blue planet is our only home. It provides a habitat for unique and diverse communities. Taking care of our planet is to look after our own home.
0: 2. Ethics is more important than religion and you would vote green if you lived in a Western democracy. Why?
1: Because they represent a similar nature-friendly philosophy as we Buddhists do. For over a thousand years, nature has been sacred to us Tibetans. On the high Himalayan plateau where we live, we try, in the spirit of Buddhism, to live in peace with nature protected by our mountains, without violence, and in compassion with all living beings. Nature is sacred to us. Nature is our true home. We humans come from nature. We can live without religion, but not without nature. Therefore, I say that environmental ethics are more important than religion. If we keep destroying nature as we are doing today, we will not survive. This is a law of nature that we have to accept. Mankind will suffer terribly if we do not learn that. A clean environment is a human right like any other human rights. It is our responsibility toward all sentient beings to ensure that we leave to our children and grandchildren a world at least as intact as we found it when we were born. There are limits to what we are allowed to do, but no limits to our
0: universal responsibility. What do you do yourself for the environment and for the climate?
1: On a personal and family level, too... We need to develop a much clearer awareness of our actions and their consequences, such as how we use water or dispose of our garbage, so that taking care of and limiting damage to the natural environment becomes an ordinary part of our daily lifestyle. That is the proper way, and it can only be achieved through education. I switch off the light when I leave my room. I take a shower instead of a bath. I eat little meat. I encourage other people to do the same. We must think globally, but act locally. This should even apply when electing political leaders. Our voting patterns are also an ethical issue. We should all vote for the real environmentalists. Fortunately, Especially young people today understand the connection between environmental politics and elections. As someone born in Tibet, the rooftop of the world, where Asia's great rivers start and the world's highest peaks are to be found, I have loved nature since my childhood. I have made environmental conservation one of my life's commitments and advocate protection of the environment wherever I go. I honor my promise to Mr. Sunderlal Bahuguna, an Indian environmentalist, to speak about environment preservation. When I travel to the trans-Himalayan region from Ladakh to Arunachal Pradesh in India, I urge people there to plant trees to save their land from becoming barren in future. Trees make the landscapes greenery and bring peace and happiness of mind in our day-to-day life.
0: 3. Vegetarianism Helps the Climate In 1965, you became a vegetarian. Have you been vegetarian since then, and why? In
1: 1965, I became completely vegetarian. No eggs, nothing. But instead, I was eating lots of cream and nuts. And after 20 months, I had trouble with my gallbladder and got jaundice. My skin, eyes, nails, everything turned yellow. My doctors advised me that I should go back to my original diet. I should again eat some meat, which I am doing about once or twice a week. So I am a little bit of a contradiction, telling people to be vegetarian as a non-vegetarian myself. Nevertheless, right from the beginning, from the time when I was in Tibet... I worked very hard to promote vegetarianism in Tibetan society. In the late 1940s, all the food served during Tibet's official festivals used to be vegetarian. Even campaigns promoting vegetarianism have been launched in the communities. In India, most of the Tibetan monastic institutions' kitchens have now started serving only vegetarian food to their monks and nuns.
0: Worldwide meat consumption is rising, so more and more billions of animals have to be killed. Do you think that worldwide meat consumption could drop again, and how is that to be achieved?
1: Buddhism does not forbid eating meat, but it is a question of how and how much. Buddhism says no animals should be killed for eating, but our attitude toward meat is rather curious. Tibetan Buddhists can buy meat but should not kill animals. What I find particularly worrying is intensive animal husbandry. We humans can live largely without or with little meat, and above all, without animal suffering, in particular in our modern world where we have many alternatives, especially fruits and vegetables. In the meantime... There is even meat made from vegetables, for instance, from peas and beetroot, from potatoes and coconuts. Intensive animal husbandry has serious consequences, not only for animals, but also for man's health, the soil, insects, and the air.
0: 4. Buddhists disapprove of killing as a sport. What you call curious is also the attitude of most Western Christians toward meat. Me too, I am only an 85% vegetarian. My doctor also recommends eating meat or fish about once a week for health reasons. If we had to slaughter ourselves the animals we eat, most of us would probably be strict vegetarians. That is also rather curious. Meat consumption and animal husbandry cause about as many greenhouse gases globally as all cars, planes, trains, and ships put together. Besides, environmental physician Professor Hans-Peter Huttner of the Medical University of Vienna says, Meat plays a crucial role in the development of cancer of the intestine or circulatory diseases. Moderate meat consumption significantly reduces your disease risk, is beneficial to environment and climate, and doesn't really hurt. A win-win situation. What I eat affects all of us. What do you think about hunting and fishing as a sport?
1: We Buddhists disapprove of killing as a sport. I support those groups and people who work for animal rights and animal welfare around the world. It is sad that millions and billions of animals are killed for human consumption. I once visited a poultry farm in Japan with 200,000 hens. They were kept in small cages just to produce eggs for two years— After that, they were sold for slaughter. That was shocking. We should support people who fight against such unworthy business and such animal misery. It is also very dangerous and short-sighted for us to simply suppress and forget about animal suffering. What we are doing to animals today can also happen to us. Perhaps one day we will kneel down and ask the animals for forgiveness— I also disapprove of the way in which we have mechanized farming these days. We must never forget the suffering we inflict on other sentient beings. I am thinking of some Tibetan butchers or Japanese fishermen who ask the animals they kill for forgiveness and pray for them.
0: Do you think that worldwide meat consumption could drop again, and how is that to be achieved?
1: In some countries, this is already the case— I meet young people everywhere who are looking for alternatives to brutal meat consumption. The new meatless brand in the USA is called Beyond Meat. Many consumers want to reduce meat consumption in order to protect the climate, but also to alleviate animal suffering caused by factory farming. Now there are vegetarian hamburgers.
0: (laughs) But that means that we Western people would have to learn to let go at least a little bit. Is letting go the heart of greater environmental justice?
1: Yes, you can say so. Letting go of surplus is the heart of spiritual growth. Just imagine what we could achieve if the USA only halved its military budget. That would be over $300 billion every year for environmental projects, such as the solar energy transition or overcoming hunger in poor countries. Defending the future instead of dangerous military upgrading. That could indeed be the beginning and the energy for an ecological age. Letting go would mean liberation.
0: Leo Tolstoy said, As long as there are slaughterhouses, there will be battlefields. Can you agree with this? Do you also see this connection between intensive livestock farming and violence among people?
1: Such connection exists. In all religions, we know this spiritual law. As you sow, so shall you reap. By nature, we have inner inhibitions about killing. Above all, we feel that it is not right to inflict pain on other sentient beings. If we let our conscience be brutalized while killing animals, it will also be brutalized while killing people.
0: Whoever changes, changes the world, you say. Western societies are mainly concerned with today's generations. Former generations do not exist anymore. And the future ones do not exist yet. And in the West, only a minority believe in rebirth. So what chance do environmental and climate protection have in this situation?
1: As I already said, the belief in reincarnation can help to protect the environment. We must not leave the young people alone in their fight for a good environment and climate. It is important that we now organize and publicize and have global solidarity with the young people. Everybody and everything must change if we want to live in a climate that is compatible with life. Our generation has damaged the climate, so we
0: also should help to save it. For many months now, hundreds of thousands of young people have been demonstrating for more and better climate protection in over 100 countries. Do these young demonstrators give you hope?
1: Members of the younger generation, to whom the 21st century belongs, have important responsibilities. They must learn from and rectify the mistakes of the past and ensure that such mistakes are not repeated. The younger generation, who will inherit this earth, has the ability and the opportunity to act and create a more compassionate world. The twentieth century experienced immense destruction, human suffering, and unprecedented environmental damage. I urge them to make the twenty-first century a century of dialogue and a century of compassion— including on the issue of environment. We need a revolution of compassion based on warm-heartedness, a sense of concern for others' well-being, and respect for the rights of others.
0: Your Holiness, dear friend, I cordially thank you for these reflections, which we have been exchanging for decades. They will help many people to understand that our 21st century must become the one in which globalized mankind finds ways to universal responsibility. I have learned from you that every single one of us can and must take on their own piece of universal responsibility if we want a better world. Inner peace, love, and compassion are the most important energies that will lead to external peace as well and to peace with nature. Whenever the Dalai Lama and I say goodbye, he places a kata, a greeting scarf made of white silk with the traditional sign of good luck, around my neck. He takes my head between his hands, our foreheads and noses touch one another in friendship, and we embrace for a long time and sense that love and peace between us humans is possible. It is the spirit that gives strength to peace, justice, and friendship.
1: 7. The Sheltering Tree of Interdependence, A Buddhist Monk's Reflections on Ecological Responsibility. This poem was released on the occasion of the presentation by His Holiness the Dalai Lama of a statue of the Buddha to the people of India and to mark the opening of the International Conference on Ecological Responsibility, a dialogue with Buddhism, on October 2nd, 1993, in New Delhi. A booklet of the poem in Tibetan and English is distributed by Tibet House, New Delhi. During the course of my extensive travels to countries across the world, rich and poor, east and west, I have seen people reveling in pleasure and people suffering. The advancement of science and technology seems to have achieved little more than linear numerical improvement. Development often means little more than more mansions and more cities. As a result, the ecological balance, the very basis of our life on earth, has been greatly affected. On the other hand, In days gone by, the people of Tibet lived a happy life, untroubled by pollution in natural conditions. Today, all over the world, including Tibet, ecological degradation is fast overtaking us. I am wholly convinced that if all of us do not make a concerted effort with a sense of universal responsibility— we will see the gradual breakdown of the fragile ecosystems that support us, resulting in an irreversible and irrevocable degradation of our planet Earth. These stanzas have been composed to underline my deep concern and to call upon all concerned people to make continuous efforts to reverse and remedy the degradation of our environment. One, O Lord Tathagata, born of the exvacus tree, peerless one, who, seeing the all-pervasive nature of interdependence between the environment and sentient beings, samsara and nirvana, moving and unmoving, teaches the world out of compassion, bestow thy benevolence on us. 2. O the Savior, the one called Avalokiteshvara, personifying the body of compassion of all Buddhas, we beseech Thee to make our spirits ripen and fructify to observe reality bereft of illusion. 3. Our obdurate egocentricity, ingrained in our minds since beginningless time, contaminates... Defiles and pollutes the environment created by the common karma of all sentient beings. 4. Lakes and ponds have lost their clarity, their coolness. The atmosphere is poisoned, nature's celestial canopy in the fiery firmament has burst asunder, and sentient beings suffer diseases unknown before. 5. Perennial snow mountains, resplendent in their glory, bow down and melt into water. The majestic oceans lose their ageless equilibrium and inundate islands. 6. The dangers of fire, water, and wind are limitless. Sweltering heat dries up our lush forests, lashing our world with unprecedented storms, and the oceans surrender their salt to the elements. 7. Though people lack not wealth, they cannot afford to breathe clean air. Rains and streams cleanse not, but remain inert and powerless liquids. 8. Human beings and countless beings that inhabit water and land reel under the yoke of physical pain caused by malevolent diseases. Their minds are dulled with sloth, stupor, and ignorance. The joys of the body and spirit are far, far away. 9. We needlessly pollute the fair bosom of our Mother Earth, rip out her trees to feed our short-sighted greed, turning our fertile earth into a sterile desert. 10. The interdependent nature of the external environment and people's inward nature described in Tantra's works on medicine and astronomy has verily been vindicated by our present experience. 11. The earth is home to living beings, equal and impartial to the moving and unmoving. Thus spoke the Buddha in truthful voice with the great earth for witness. Twelve. As a noble being recognizes the kindness of a sentient mother and makes recompense for it, so the earth, the universal mother which nurtures equally, should be regarded with affection and care. Thirteen. Forsake wastage, pollution not the clean, clear nature of the four elements, and destroy the well-being of people, but absorb yourself in actions that are beneficial to all. Fourteen. Under a tree was the great Saga Buddha born, Under a tree, he overcame passion and attained enlightenment. Under two trees did he pass in nirvana. Verily, the Buddha held the tree in great esteem. Fifteen. Here, where Manjushri's emanation, Lama Tsongkhapa's body bloomed forth, is marked by a sandal tree bearing a hundred thousand images of the Buddha. 16. Is it not well known that some transcendental deities, eminent local deities and spirits, make their abode in trees? 17. Flourishing trees clean the wind, help us breathe the sustaining air of life. They please the eye and soothe the mind. Their shade makes a welcome resting place. 18. In Vinaya, the Buddha taught monks to care for tender trees. From this we learn the virtue of planting, of nurturing trees. 19. The Buddha forbade monks to cut, cause others to cut living plants, destroy seeds, or defile the fresh green grass. Should this not inspire us? to love and protect our environment. 20. They say in the celestial realms the trees emanate the Buddha's blessings and echo the sound of basic Buddhist doctrines like impermanence. 21. It is trees that bring rain, trees that hold the essence of the soil. Kalpataru, The tree of wish fulfillment virtually resides on earth to serve all purposes. 22. In times of yore, our forebears ate the fruits of trees, wore their leaves, discovered fire by the attrition of wood, took refuge amidst the foliage of trees when they encountered danger. 23. Even in this age of science, of technology, trees provide us shelter. The chairs we sit in, the beds we lie on. When the heart is ablaze with the fire of anger, fueled by wrangling, trees bring refreshing, welcome coolness. 24. In the trees lie the roars of all life on earth, When it vanishes, the land exemplified by the name of the jambu tree will remain no more than a dreary, desolate desert. 25. Nothing is dearer to the living than life. Recognizing this, in the Vinaya rules, the Buddha lays down prohibitions like the use of water with living creatures. 26. In the remoteness of the Himalayas, in the days of yore, the land of Tibet, observed a ban on hunting, on fishing, and, during designated periods, even construction. These traditions are noble, for they preserve and cherish the lives of humble, helpless, defenseless creatures. 27. Playing with the lives of other beings without sensitivity or hesitation, as in the act of hunting or fishing for sport, is an act of heedless, needless violence, a violation of the solemn rights of all living beings. 28. Being attentive to the nature of interdependence of all creatures, both animate and inanimate, One should never slacken in one's efforts to preserve and conserve nature's energy. 29. On a certain day, month, and year, one should observe the ceremony of tree planting. Thus, one fulfills one's responsibilities, serves one's fellow beings, which not only brings one happiness, but benefits all. 30. May the force of observing that which is right and abstinence from wrong practices and evil deeds nourish and augment the prosperity of the world. May it invigorate living beings and help them blossom. May sylvan joy and pristine happiness ever increase, ever spread, and encompass all that is.
0: 8. For a Solar Age Epilogue by Franz Alt 1. Reconciling Economy and Ecology Climate change is not distant. It's already here. We have to face reality, which may be complicated, but not hopeless. Since the Enlightenment about 300 years ago, at the latest and the de-idealization of the world philosophy has no longer been theology's handmaid and Scylla theology and our western cultural model is based on scientific knowledge at least we think so but why have scientists worldwide been warning for decades against climate change without actually being heard in politics and society let alone bringing about appropriate actions Why is the enlightenment of the past not sufficient to secure our salvation? In order to prevent the worst, we need a new enlightenment, a second one, more profound, an enlightening of the enlightenment. In this book, the Dalai Lama demonstrates very clearly that today's environmental crisis is the crisis of our inner world. We think that we know what we are doing, but actually we are not doing what we know. The idea that rationalism alone will save us is quite irrational. Reason alone will not bring man to his senses. We love to suppress such insight. There are those, however, that are fully aware of what they are doing. And many are afraid of the necessary changes. It is true that sometimes politicians opt for necessary changes out of fear. So the CFC ban resulted from the fear of skin cancer. The introduction of the three-way catalytic converter in German cars resulted from the fear of dying forests. The lobbyists of the traditional energy business are simply afraid of losing their benefits. Politicians also know about their reliance on the greed of big companies, and many citizens travel by plane or by car and eat themselves sick with a lot of meat, although they know what they are doing to themselves, the environment, and their children's future. Can humans really confront this reality? Is the classical, purely rationalistic enlightenment sufficient for us? Conservatives and religious people have trusted the wisdom of nature for millennia. But this confidence is being shaken in times of global warming and the extinction of species. Mother Nature does not cooperate anymore, but is running riot. She has got a fever and is on strike. We are about to lose our partner and confidant, nature, the source of our wealth and happiness. But first, we should at least understand that we do not want to save the climate as such, but, quite egotistically, ourselves. And now, by means of a second enlightenment, we will have to achieve success in thinking that combines religion and philosophy, nature and reason, freedom and responsibility. This is what we call eco-spirituality in this book. Here, the Dalai Lama also speaks of education of the heart. If we do not understand this interdependence, our liberty will soon end in enslavement. Global warming is already creating a lack of freedom, for instance for refugees or farmers who are losing their land to the desert, or for elderly people who died in Europe during the hot summers of 2003 and 2018. In 2003 alone, according to EU statistics, about 60,000 people died of the heat within the EU. In India, where temperatures rose to unbearable 122 degrees Fahrenheit, hundreds of thousands of elderly people died from overheating. It is absolutely surprising to see how difficult it is, especially for conservatives, to understand these correlations, whereas helping to preserve the creation should be the conservatives' central task. Ah, I wish the conservatives were really conservative. After the Enlightenment, many intellectuals believed that we could become emancipated not only from our self-inflicted immaturity, but also from nature. Within only 300 years, we robbed nature of her resources that she had gathered in 300 million years, blew the waste into the air, and filled the gigantic holes that were made with gigantic waste. Today's economists call it progress. What now? 2 there is no matter. For 300 years, economists have believed that money was the basis of all economizing. Nature, however, is the basis of an economy that deserves this name. Economizing on dead soil makes little sense and does not need any jobs. Both economy and ecology derive from the Greek oikos, i.e. economizing. The power of money is the principal disease of our time. The attempt to separate numbers from values results in total dominance of the numbers, writes Christian Felber, Austrian economist, author and founder of The Welfare Economy. And separating economy from ecology is one of the greatest sins committed by economists. The increase of money does not make the world richer. In the past 50 years, we have brought about the most brutal kind of poverty by killing off about half the species of animal and plant life. More money, but less richness of life. Unlike this crazy economy, theology is almost an exact science. Today's economists should learn to place their science in a broader holistic context. Pope Francis says, Everything is connected with everything. The poor and nature are crying for help. Joachim Shenhuba, climatologist and physicist, has reached a similar conclusion and summarizes it as follows. Speaking to an economist is the maximum penalty for a physicist. There will be no future unless we learn presently to avoid the biggest mistakes of the past. Only then will we arrive in the real world or in the divine order. In religious language, God is identical with spirit according to the Gospel of John. With this in mind, Nobel laureate Max Planck says, as a physicist, i.e. as somebody who has devoted his whole life to the most clear-headed science, to the study of matter, I will certainly not be held to be a dreamer. I can tell you as a result of my research about atoms this much. There is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of force which brings the particle of an atom to vibration and holds this most minute solar system of the atom together we must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. Not the visible yet transient matter is real and true, but rather the invisible and immortal spirit. As there cannot be a mind as such, and as every mind belongs to a being, we are forced to assume the existence of spiritual beings. As these beings cannot exist by themselves but must be created, I have no hesitation in calling this mysterious creator Like all ancient civilizations, God. Professor Hans Peter Dürr, physicist and former director at the Max Planck Institute in Munich, argues similarly in his popular book, There Is No Matter. Shortly before he died, we walked up to the Acropolis in Athens. He already had great difficulty breathing. Surrounded by so much matter of stones and rocks, I said to the world renowned physicist, Everything here is actually matter. Oh, no, he replied, to the dismay of many a Marxist and materialist. All this is materialized spirit. The spirit has been, and will always be, primary. A surprising insight for a physicist. 3. In depth, all life is one. Hans-Peter Dörr's research shows amazing parallels between Judaic-Christian thinking, Hindu-Buddhist insights, and the latest findings of modern quantum physics. We must finally learn to cross borders in order to overcome what seems irreconcilable. The borders of pure rationalism and the Enlightenment run at the surface. In depth, all life is one. This is the conclusion of both today's quantum physicists and the Dalai Lama according to the German physicist Karl Friedrich von Weizsäcker. If we understand or imagine God as the sun behind the sun, solar thinking and acting will be more than the purely technical transition from the fossil age to a solar age. The transition is a sign of a new, profound, holistic, and mature attitude toward life of divine substance. Tens of thousands of people worldwide inspired with this attitude and change of mind tell me, we have now taken a new attitude toward nature and the sun. We're looking upward more often and also understand what Jesus meant in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. There is simply no sun only for energy companies. The sun, a divine symbol, shines on all of us, a master craftsman creating inexhaustible masterpieces and inspiring primarily the wonders of the mind. 4. No child should starve to death. To many solar humans, looking upward also means looking inside. They learn to gain access to their souls through their dreams. Due to their external energy autocracy, they become aware of their inner energy sovereignty. They recognize that the outer energy crisis corresponds to a much deeper inner energy crisis, an energy crisis of their soul. And the human soul, according to the renowned Swiss depth psychologist Carl Gustav Jung, is the only superpower of this world that I recognize. If we acted in a way that is truly holistic and based on knowledge, with an awareness of our soul, we would have reduced the greenhouse gases a long time ago, and not only articulated, but also realized transition in the field of energy and transport, water, and agriculture. But we are living in a period that, to a great extent, is unaware of our soul, which makes us resistant to, and incapable of, learning. It seems that only inner healing can bring about outer healing. As the mystics of the Middle Ages already knew, outer like inner, inner like outer. Our inner light, as described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, our soul can help us to become a sunny being to the outside. And we may suddenly sense that the most important things in life are free. Joy and gratitude in ourselves, as well as the sun above us. Yet joy, love, and gratitude are as little for sale as the sun. They are God's gift. Let us finally make intelligent use of them. For this purpose, we should open our hearts in the same way as we can place the roofs and walls of our houses at disposal for solar installations as landing strips for the spirit from above. So we can, perhaps for the first time in mankind's history, work together so that one day children will no longer have to starve and people will not be forced to flee their country. And we will learn that nobody leaves his home voluntarily. Energy crisis, refugee crisis, and climate crisis are closely linked. If we see this correlation, we will find solutions. Crises give rise to new opportunities. The key to the solution of all these crises is the energy crisis. In October 2018, I was invited to give lectures in Mali, Western Africa. In Bamako, Mali's capital, I was expected to speak at an African solar energy conference. Africa and the sun. What a chance. Upon invitation of the Minister of Energy, we speakers traveled to a village of 20,000 inhabitants outside the capital. Only three years ago, There had been no electricity there. But meanwhile, people now had solar installations and electricity. The village pharmacist told me that by means of solar energy, the health level of the village had risen. He now could, unlike before, cool a lot of medicine. In a school, I got to know children who enthused about the benefits of solar energy because now they would watch soccer on TV. Mothers report that now they can send their children to school as they can do their homework in the evening in the light of solar lamps, which was impossible before. Education changes everything. A dressmaker told me that at last she has an electric sewing machine and did not have to slave away at the treadle anymore. The village mayor said to me, since we've had electricity in the village, young people don't think of fleeing to Europe anymore. Solar energy also creates new jobs. All problems created by man can also be solved by man. Shortly afterward, I gave a lecture at the Conference of the World Wind Energy Association in Karachi, Pakistan. Here, the Chinese company Goldwind, one of the world's greatest producers of wind turbines, has, with the help of German technology, set up a wind park that produces affordable and clean electricity for 1.5 million people in Karachi. My Pakistani friends are full of praise for such progress. They are fully convinced that their country will achieve the complete energy transition by the middle of this century. Karachi and Mali could be everywhere. Every wind turbine and every solar installation, every hydropower plant and every biogas plant is a sign of peace. Never are wars waged over the sun or the wind.